every person who has left will tell you exactly the same thing. I couldn't mention this to my wife. I couldn't mention it to my husband. I couldn't mention it to my friends. I couldn't write it in a letter to my parents because the letters are all read. Phone calls are all listened to. I couldn't do or say anything that would hint to anyone. I just had to plot it out and then make my escape. Mike Rinder is one of the biggest names in the former Scientology world, working in the heart of the Sea Org for 25 years. He served on the board of directors of the Church of Scientology and served as executive director to its Office of Special Affairs, so he oversaw legal and PR matters. So it's fair to say he was a pretty huge loss to the Church of Scientology when he left. The On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast is very much about exposing cults and extreme ideologies, whether it be the extremes of woke culture or the far right or Mormons, Hasidic Jews and Islam or Nixium and non-religious cult, all those kinds of things. One of the most active cults still active today and relatively unchallenged is Scientology, which is why I've been focusing on them so much lately. They've been allegedly poisoning pets of those speaking out against rape from Scientology member Danny Masterson, and they're still tax-exempt as a religion. Meanwhile, a certain Tom Cruise has been raking in millions of dollars because we keep buying tickets to his movies. Well, it's time to take a stand, I think. Mike Rinder is an author and television presenter and has just released his brilliant memoir, A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology, which is a reference to the length, the billion part, of the contract Scientology makes its members sign. They believe in an alien overlord called Xenu and spirits that live on in souls. Tragically, Mike had to leave his wife and children behind when he left the cult. He did hear from them since leaving, but it wasn't very pleasant, as you'll hear. We talk about the difficulties of leaving, as well as the guilt Mike feels for enforcing the very rules and harsh punishments for many years that he himself has now been trying to avoid and get away from since leaving. Check out his podcast, Fair Game, which he presents with his friend and King of Queens actress, Leah Remini, another prominent former Scientologist, and pick up a billion years in all the normal book places. It really makes for a unique and fascinating read because Mike was able to work really closely with Scientology creator L. Ron Hubbard, who has taken on an almost mystical or mythical presence since his death in 1986. It's also a fascinating insight into the way that cults make us feel like we're doing good. You, you see it from Mike's side and you almost find yourself getting excited for him as he progresses through the ranks of Scientology after growing up in Australia and sailing with the Sea Org cruise ship around Madeira. You're on the edge of the Sea Org in Scientology with Mike Rinder. Your amazing, fantastic book that I'm really, really enjoying reading, A Billion Years, it starts with a very thrilling escape scene. What a lot of people probably don't know about Scientology, who you know, who aren't familiar with it, is that you would have to escape because most religions and things, you know, you you go to church on a Sunday, then you go home. How does one escape? Why does one have to escape? Well, there's there's sort of two types of Scientologists. There is the people who work for the organization, and then there is the people that pay the money to get the, the services from the organization. Um, those 
people who work for the organization are then split into two categories, the people that work in local Scientology organizations and then the members of the C organization, which is sort of the inner core elite of Scientology that live and work communally and uh, in reference to the name of the book, sign a billion-year contract as Sea Org members to commit themselves, essentially committing themselves for eternity to achieving the aims of Scientology. That inner core, the Sea Organization, which I was a member of for more than 30 years, is a very, very uh, controlled environment. Um, in At the upper echelons, at the very top of Scientology, the facilities that one lives and works in are, you know, patrolled by security forces and have cameras everywhere and are uh, super, super uh, secure locations that it is difficult to get away from. And if you have uh, enough intention, you can pull it off. You know, plenty of people have. I'm not the first person who has escaped the sea organization, but there are enough barriers, both physical and even more mental, to the escape that most people don't. Even if they have a desire to get away or don't want to be there anymore, they can't figure out how to pull it off. They are worried about what they're told about what the outside world is like, that, you know, this it's a, it's a terrible... Uh, horrible uh, place where you're going to end up, you know, dying of cancer after you flip burgers at McDonald's for, you know, the rest of your life. It's portrayed as being the sort of antithesis of everything that Scientology claims to be solving about the world. Right. And so it's a, it's a, a psychological as well as a physical to an extent, constraint. Uh, and in in the book, in that chapter, you say obviously you were the person that was stopping people leaving before. And you write, you know, I knew all the tricks. What what are these tricks? I suppose you know, telling people that you're going to work in McDonald's or, or whatever it might be. <laughs> well, there, that's mostly the tricks of how you track someone down if they do escape, because. Escaping is one thing. Staying escaped is another matter. Um, there is this thing that, that exists in the C organization called the blow drill. And blow is the terminology that is used in Scientology for an unauthorized departure. And the blow drill goes into effect the minute someone who has any sort of prominence or is perceived to be a threat in some fashion takes off and instantly there is a a group of people that go to work to track down where this person is and they go through like Scientology collects enormous numbers of records and documents and has files on everything and so a Sea Org member, all of their bank accounts, their social security number, the name, their maiden name of their mother, all the information that you need in order to gather information about someone, like where are they spending money on their credit cards, 
What airlines have they booked on? Uh, did they buy a bus ticket? Uh, are they in a hotel? Can all be found out very quickly. And then if the person is someone important, then a team is sent to go get them back. And usually that consists of someone from the security force and then whoever it is that might be uh, what is called in Scientology an opinion leader or an influencer for that person. It might be their wife. It might be a child. It might be their boss. It, whoever it is, they're sent out to persuade the person to come back. And it's successful more often than not, unfortunately. Fair gaming, right? Well, fair gaming is fair gaming is a slightly different thing, Andrew. Uh, but yes, that that falls under the category. But fair gaming is a term that is uh, developed by Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and he originally said that the enemies of Scientology effectively are fair game. You can do anything to them. You can trick them. You can sue them. You can lie to them. You can beat them up. You, like th There is no holds barred on what gets done to seek to destroy an enemy of Scientology. And Hubbard laid out all these methods of how you go about doing this. He wrote them down. Crazily enough, they are written down and they describe how you harass someone, hire private investigators, frame them, get them fired from their jobs, all of these sort of things. Kill their pets. It doesn't say that specifically, but any anything is anything goes, literally. Uh, and Scientology today says... Fair game? Oh, that was canceled way back in the 60s. Fair game doesn't exist. Well, actually, if you read what Hubbard said, he said, we are canceling the use of the term fair game. We are not changing how we treat enemies of Scientology. So in order to try and, and deal with the bad public relations that they were getting from this fair game business, he said, don't use those words anymore, but keep doing the same stuff. So they continue to do the same stuff. And I and others like Leah Remini and, and various other former uh, members of Scientology call that still fair game because that is what it is. And there's stuff about you, isn't there? And Leah, there's all sorts of stuff online. And, and previous ex-Scientologists I've, I've uh, interviewed, there's stuff all about them from, that Scientologists have written that is slanderous. And what, what is, what's it like to read that stuff about yourself? And is, the, is there part of you, is it almost like a, an initiation of, of leaving? Like, you know, okay, I got my thing. Um, yes, it is. I mean, they're pretty... Uh, proficient at their smears they have you know purchased hundreds if not thousands of urls so that they can have who is mike rinder and who is leah remini and leah remini sucks and mike rinder's an asshole dot dot com um and they put up routine uh posts on social media and they shoot these videos um the vast majority of ones about me come from my daughter and ex-wife, unfortunately, and I talk at great length about that in the book. Um, they are being uh, 
you know, observant, obedient, good Scientologists doing what they are doing, reading scripts into a video camera. Um, but the what's so crazy about this, Andrew, is they also pay for Google ads. Like if you search my name or my book or uh, Leah Remini, or what comes up as the number one item is a paid ad for who is Mike Rinder? Hear the real story about him being a wife beater, a child abuser, a liar, a thief, a no good, nothing. Um, that, those things, and hiring private investigators and lawyers to threaten people and paying for these ads and the production of these videos is being subsidized by the United States taxpayers because Scientology is tax exempt. So if you pay taxes, a portion, a little portion of your taxes are going to support those activities of Scientology, which is, in my view, the primary reason why Scientology should not be a tax-exempt religious organization. Absolutely right. I, I think so. I mean, is it just on a feeling level? To, I know you, you know that they're reading out a script, but to see your daughter saying those kinds of things about you what does that feel like? It sucks. I mean, it's terrible. And what's sort of so terrible about it is what I write in the beginning of the book. I mean, this book, my book is addressed to the two children that I brought into the Scientology world and were raised in the Sea Organization because I feel a responsibility for having put them in the position that they are in now where they don't really have any free will and they don't they can't make the choices that they should be able to make they're not informed about what's really going on and so i see them and i feel a sort of mixture of kind of horror and sadness and pity like and uh guilt it, it's a it's a lot of mixed emotions, um, but this book is sort of an attempt to do something else to change that circumstance. I feel bad about where they are and, and the life that they are living. I don't deny them, and I say in the book, look, if you want to be a Scientologist, if you want to be in the SEAL, that's totally fine by me. It's okay. You, you're adults now. You can make your own decisions, but you need to be informed. You see the world through the eyes that, of Scientology that has been hammered into you since you were the day you were born. And that brainwashing, that, that culture of living inside the bubble of Scientology creates an, an extraordinarily distorted view of the world and an extraordinarily extorted view of me. So that's what the book is trying to explain. What, who am I? What, what did I go through? What was my thought process? How did I come to the conclusion that I needed to escape? How did I get there in the first place? So hopefully they will one day read it and be able to understand a little bit about me. I also hope that other people 
who have not been in Scientology, maybe in some other organization or in a difficult relationship or a difficult work situation, see something in what I've written that will help them. You know, I say at the beginning, it's never too late to change your life. I walked or I escaped from Scientology and walked out the door in London with absolutely nothing when I was 52 years old. I had never held a job outside of Scientology. I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have any real friends. I had nothing outside the world of Scientology. And I literally started from nothing. And that's what this book chronicles is sort of that journey. Do you hold out much hope to get a phone call one day from you know, a family member in Scientology saying, hey, I'm out as well, let's go for coffee? Of course. Of course. If I didn't have any hope, then I wouldn't be doing this. I hope that that will happen. You know, I look to myself again as an example. I was a very, very senior official in Scientology for a long, long time. I was on the board of the Church of Scientology International. I was the international spokesperson for Scientology. If you had surveyed Scientologists and said, do you think Mike Rinder will ever leave Scientology? They would have all said no, and probably I would have said no for a long part of that that journey that I went on, but eventually I did. So, you know, I'm a I'm the poster child for how anything is possible. Could even Tom Cruise leave? Yes, he could. Although I don't know that he has. Um, I don't see the the circumstances that that bring about the sort of enforced straw that breaks the camel's back so to speak that that you go okay i can't take this anymore there's nothing that could be worse than the life that i am currently living and i gotta get out of here i don't see that happening with him yeah his life seems pretty pretty okay hey it's andrew if you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. 
Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. I think what's, I mean, as you say, people were very surprised you left because you were so high up. And it's what is quite remarkable about you. I mean, you worked at one stage directly under L. Ron Hubbard, the, the creator of Scientology. Take me back to those those days. You'd, you'd first gotten onto the Sea Org, the, the boat that goes around. What was what was it like the initial days? Mm. Well, I described them uh, in the book. It was pretty rough to begin with. I was raised like it was almost a preordained destiny for me to go into the sea organization. My parents were very avid Scientologists, and it was kind of the thing to do to go work with with the founder of, of Scientology. And that was a very, very sort of prestigious thing to, you know, it was like going to the Vatican and becoming a, a bishop in the Vatican. I was like at the top. And, but, you know, unlike walking into the Vatican, walking in onto the Apollo, which was the name of the ship that, that Hubbard was sailing on, was like, you know, I described the the living conditions as like the black hole of Calcutta. It was pretty rough. But Seahawk members are conditioned to accept a lot of physical deprivations in, in the cause of achieving these these altruistic goals of Scientology, uh, these huge, we're going to save the planet and every man, woman, and child on it, and we are the only people that can, and, you know, all the great, uh, you, there's been sacrifice throughout the ages, you know, the Roman legions that built the Roman Empire suffered enormous hardships to accomplish what they accomplished and Sea Org members have to suffer enormous hardships and what's what's important is not your physical uh comfort but that fact that you're getting your job done and doing something to save the planet. So it was a it was an interesting um you know thrown off the deep end of the pier into the very cold waters of life in the Sea Org. Uh, Hubbard himself was a very interesting character. I mean, he was charismatic. He was larger than life. He was, 
you know, sort of uh, hail fellow, well met, slap on the back, big laugh, but also very um, mercurial in his mood swings. And he could get extraordinarily mad and angry and yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs. Um, It took a long time for me, Andrew. Uh, I left an escape from the sea organization in 2007 and i still even after escaping considered myself to be a scientologist i still believe that hubbard was in some in some fashion uh, uh a guru who had found answers to life and that took a longer that took me longer to to sort of sort through what was true and what was false about him and his and his legacy his teachings and you know I talk about that at some length in the book too about you know I escaped because I found the 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 conditions and the insanities of the person who took over after Hubbard died David Miscavige to be completely out of control, but I didn't believe that what Hubbard had said was all wrong and that Miscavige was actually perverting that and, you know, that that had Hubbard still been around, things would have been very different and I wouldn't have escaped. So it, the big turning point for me with respect to Hubbard was reading Russell Miller's unauthorized biography of him, uh, Madman or Messiah, which was very, very eye-opening to me and explained a lot of the experiences that I had had with Hubbard. You know, I, today I would say Hubbard was a, a great storyteller and he told Many, 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 many stories that were complete and utter fabrications and uh, or embellishments or whatever in the course of his dissertations about Scientology and claimed, you know, he'd done scientific experiments that proved this and and that he had tested this on that, uh, you know, and all of Scientology, he called it a technology. He doesn't call he doesn't refer to what he wrote and spoke about Scientology as teachings or parables or you know something uh, of interest he refers to it as technology the idea being that if you take what he says and do it exactly and precisely it will work 100% of the time and this is what Hubbard this is what Scientologists believe. They believe that Hubbard's writings and words are absolute truth that is brilliant, no matter what it is or what it says, from how to wash windows to how to uh, to take someone in a psychotic break and calm them down and bring them back to sanity. So it's it's very interesting to me to understand now that Scientology is 
basically a continuation of his career as a storyteller and writer of fiction. Well, yeah, even as far as I, I think there were examples of, um, you know, you get cancer because you didn't smoke enough cigarettes or that kind of thing. And he had these, did he have horrible teeth as well? Yes, he did. He did, hated dentists. He hated doctors. He did, like, he had... Uh, it's sort of the it's sort of the the um, most obvious thing about Hubbard that Scientologists are sort of taught to ignore or set aside. He he was not a healthy person, and yet he claimed Dianetics could solve all physical problems you know you throw away your glasses you can throw away your canes you'll be able to walk you'll it'll cure you of arthritis it'll cure you of cancer it'll cure you of everything and he ended up a complete physical wreck he claims that scientology uh makes makes relationships work and marriages work and he had terrible familial relationships he abandoned his first wife his he you know claimed his second wife didn't exist he married her polygamously he disowned his daughter that he had with her and said she wasn't his daughter his other children abandoned scientology all except for one one committed suicide because of the stigma of being gay i mean his family life is a, an American horror story. And yet, you ask a Scientologist and they will tell you that the, the PR from Hubbard is we have the technology to make relationships work, all relationships. We can make marriages work. There's even a film that he wrote and scripted that got shot about how to save a marriage. And it works 100% of the time if you do what Hubbard said. Don't do what he did, do what he said. So this is, this is sort of the, the big conundrum of Scientology. How do, you, how do smart people become so uh, stupid? What was going through your mind when, when there were you know, these some obvious contradictions like some of these things. You're seeing him on the boat. He's wandering around looking unhealthy and horrible and talking about health and stuff. So what goes through your head at that point? There's something that I don't totally understand yet. There's something that I haven't yet, ha hasn't been revealed to me yet that explains this. Or, well, it doesn't really matter because he claims, you know, I'm not a god, I'm just a man. Well, while presenting himself really as a god, you know, not saying I am God, but saying my word is the word of God, you must follow it, and Scientologists believing that, but there is, there is this, this term called thought stopping. And it is a, it is a term that is used in, you know, psych, psychology and uh, I don't know if psychiatry, but psychology certainly of how someone manages to block out the, the cognitive dissonance that is apparent to everybody else around them. And there are numerous Scientology is like a masterwork on the subject of thought stopping. How, we, how do you explain 
anything and everything that is a question or a criticism or uh, a pointing out of, uh, you know, obviously crazy stuff. How do you explain all that? There are explanations for everything in Scientology, like detailed explanations. And uh, they're very, very effective. And there's, speaking of that cognitive dissonance, the funny thing about Scientology, well, one of the funny things, you, you very rarely hear anyone talk about Xenu. I, I, I've spoken to many ex-Scientologists. I've listened to lots of stuff, read lots of stuff. You rarely hear any mention of Lord Zeno or any of the, the the religious scripture, so to speak, around Scientology. Does that suggest that it was all just sort of decoration? Was it? Did people just not really believe any of that? It was just a bit of fiction to add to the whole thing? No, 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 no. Scientologists believe that 100%. And I write about my experience with that in the book and what happened and why I started to to believe it and Scientologists to this day the the people who have attained that level in Scientology which takes you a while to get there before you're deemed to be spiritually in shape to be able to experience the story of Xenu um, I describe how that sort of went down for me there is a one of Hubbard's greatest inventions was this thing called the e-meter which is this device that's sort of like a lie detector that's used in Scientology and uh, it's a it's sort of a, a meter with a dial on it and you hold these cans in your hand and a little electrical current passes through your body and is, is registers on this meter Scientologists believe absolutely without doubt that the e-meter never lies. And Hubbard had another piece of genius, which was the e-meter reads, or the needle reacts, below your level of consciousness. So you may not be aware of something, but if the meter is reacting, it exists. And... You, so you see these, and, and everybody in Scientology experiences these scenarios where they are sitting down on an e-meter, and, and there is another fundamental principle of Scientology of going back to the earliest time when something began, you know, regression theory. And it's, you know, that's not that uncommon in, in the field of, of mental studies. But in Scientology, you have this e-meter. So if you're supposed to be finding the earliest part of something happening to you that, that you're trying to deal with that's a negative impact on your life, and you get to, to well, I was two years old, and you know that's the first time I can recall, well, there's still something that you need to come up with, so close your eyes and think of what it could be. And... Oh well, I'm getting I'm getting this thought about uh, you know I'm carrying a spear and okay yeah that's reading that's reading okay so when was that um, oh gosh I don't know when when was it uh, I don't know the 1700s I don't know and the auditor the person that is using the emitter will guide you. And tell you, yes, that is what it is, because it says so on the e-meter. And this creates these, these uh, sort of uh, 
memories that you go, I have, this seems like total bullshit to me. And then the person is going, well, no, it's reading on the meter. Okay. Well, I guess it is. And that's what happens with the OT three story about, you know, the, the evil galactic leader, Lord Zenu gathering together souls, 2 billion and packaging them in glycol and putting them on DC eight rocket ships and sending them to earth and dropping them in volcanoes and blowing them up with H bombs. That's the basic quick, quick, you know, 30 second version of what that story is. And that those beings are now stuck to every person on planet earth. And they're called body thetans and thetan is the Scientology term for spirit. And that by auditing now you can address those thetans and remove them from your body and you go oh my god this sounds ridiculous uh, this is just so bizarre well you don't have to believe me you don't have to believe what run says what does the meter say so you sit down on the e-meter and you start getting reads and you go Oh, well, maybe that is because the meat is saying, maybe I'm just not aware enough yet to understand this. I'll keep working at it and I will get there. And that's the sort of, you know, in a nutshell, how one buys into the, the bullshit. You then, you know, fully believed and you thought you'd have a billion years you came out, what was it, 52, were you? Yes. So then had to contend with the fact that rather than a billion, you had a little bit less than that. How did that feel? <laughs> uh, I was uh, very relieved. I wasn't, looking forward, I wasn't looking forward to a billion years of doing that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you were out. How exciting. Wow, what an amazing world on the outside. It was, it was very exciting. It was... I describe, I try to describe what my feelings were when I got on the tube because I was in London and I got on the tube at Warren Street and I got off in Piccadilly and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling uh, a freedom that I have not felt at any time in my life. Like literally, I suddenly had the freedom to do, think, say, and be anything that I wanted and without any restrictions. On the other hand, that freedom is also a bit scary because they didn't know what to do, be, or where to go or what. It was like, a, oh, my God, how am I going to navigate my way through the world? And I was worried. I was worried that they were going to find me. I went to great lengths to make sure that they didn't. I was worried about the consequences on my children and wife at the time that they would in some way be punished for what I had done. Um, and also my mother and my brother and my sister and, you know, everybody else in my family. So there was a lot of mixed emotions, but, but I guess the biggest one was the relief of feeling, uh, the first sort of moments of freedom. I guess it's sort of like someone that comes out of prison. They just walk out and suddenly that, you know, they can go to a restaurant, they can eat what they want. They can sleep when they want. They, you know, nobody's herding them around. So it was very liberating from that, 
from that perspective. Would you have uh, previously, when you were in Scientology, punished the family of somebody who, who had left? Well, what happens, Andrew, is that they get pulled in and put on the e-meter and sec-checked, which is the Scientology term, security checking. It is being interrogated on the e-meter to find out what they knew because Scientology is a snitch culture. And if you don't report on something that you believe to be um, a departure from what's acceptable in Scientology and it gets discovered subsequently, you are considered to be just as guilty as the person that committed the act and are punished the same as the person who committed the act. So I was fearful, and this happens all the time, that they would be pulled in and be going, well, you know, we thought maybe he might leave, or we didn't report the fact that he said, you know, I, I didn't really know what was going to happen, but I didn't have any control over it, so that sort of made it more worrisome. Were you able to say goodbye or to you know in, in any way hint to your family or friends there like listen i might be out of here soon no 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 nobody does that if you do that even to your wife you're going to get reported on instantly and then you will be locked down with a security guard outside a door watching you 24 7 it's not you can't you can't let on even in an inkling and every person who has left will tell you exactly the same thing nope i couldn't i couldn't mention this to my wife i couldn't mention it to my husband i couldn't mention it to my friends i couldn't say anything to anybody i couldn't write it in a letter to my parents because the letters are all read i couldn't make a phone call because we the phone calls are all listened to. I couldn't do or say anything that would hint to anyone. I just had to plot it out and then make my escape. It's, you must have felt a lot of conflicting feelings and a lot of guilt for the people who were going to wake up and suddenly see, you know, where's Mike? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I also cover in the book that once I managed to get back to the United States and I ended up I ended up uh, going and living temporarily with David Miscavige's elder brother and his wife. Um, he, they were my best friends and had been my friend. Biddy, his wife, I had known since the days of the Apollo. And Ronnie, I had known for a very, very long time. I knew the whole family, his dad, his mom, his sisters, everybody. So I went to live with them after I escaped from London. And Biddy was very close friends with my ex-wife. And she said, you need to write to Kathy and tell her that she needs to come here so that we can sit down and talk to her. And if she decides that she doesn't want to, to leave the C organization, fine. But at least we'll know that we've had a chance to talk to her and maybe Benjamin and Taryn, my two elder children, can come with her. So I wrote this letter and I said, Betty, I don't think this is going to work. And she said, well, you got to give it a try. I think maybe Kathy will come. I wrote the letter and I got a handwritten note back from Kathy, my ex-wife, that said, dear Mike, I received your letter. Fuck you. 
I'll tell the kids divorce papers are being are being uh, put together, Kathy. That was it. I mean, there was a, a couple more sentences, but you know, I I I think I put the whole thing in the book. It, it's just like instantaneously, any good Scientologist will take that attitude about someone like me who has left. Sure. I mean, if, if, if she'd said, okay, I'll come and meet, that would be tantamount to saying I'm leaving as well. I'm leaving. Right. right. Yeah. So she wouldn't be allowed to. So it's, there's like, there's many catch 22s in this world of Scientology. It must, as a sad, you know, that's the sad side. It, I can imagine when you get to have a reunion with somebody who left five, ten years before you or or five, ten years after you, that must be elation. Like, we're both out now and we can meet in the outside world. It, it's absolutely amazing, Andrew. The people who I then hooked up with, who I had not seen since they had left the Sea Org, and then subsequently people who left after me who reached out, is a community that is sort of like, unlike any, well, I, I, I analogize it to, you know, people that were in uh, an infantry division in the war and went through these horrendous experiences, survived, and now are on the other side. And they have a bond that nobody outside of that little group can really understand. And... For the longest time, the the only way, because many people that leave the Sea Org are like second-generation Scientologists. Many people in the Sea Org are second-generation Scientologists like I was, and they don't have anybody to go back to. They walk out, and that's it. They're, they're on their own in the world, except for if they can find former members of the Sea Org to kind of team up with, which is what I did, which is what many, many of people have done. And so knowing that, a bunch of us have formed this organization called the Aftermath Foundation, named after the TV show that Leah and I did, which is a, a, a network now of people and resources available for people escaping Scientology. So... And hopefully it will continue to grow and we will be able to make this into a network that is able to help people escaping any sort of similar organization. Um, but yes, that the world of former Sea Org members, particularly former Sea Org members who were at the highest echelons of Scientology, is a, uh, a pretty tight-knit group. How did you um, get in touch with Leah? That's Leah Remini, who was in The King of Queens. People even in, in, in the UK will know that one. I used to watch it. Uh, how did you get about, you know, did you know each other before? Or was that an after thing? And then you made that podcast, Fair Game, which I would encourage people to listen to if you want to know more as well. Well, I had met Leah in when I was in Scientology. I talk about the where we met and when and how. I was, in, I was introduced to her by Lisa Marie Presley, as a matter of fact. Um, but then after she left, uh, she first reached out to another woman who had left, uh, a sort of a famous, uh, Sea Org member called Debbie Cook and Debbie Cook had left and 
kind of everybody knew Debbie Cook just because of the position that she had held. And Leah had reached out to Debbie and Debbie had told her, gave, given Leah my phone number and Leah called me and asked me for my advice. And this was actually before Leah had officially left Scientology. She was still trying to navigate her way through the the minefield of of uh, getting out out and though she had already you know made her infamous inquiry as to where's Shelley, the wife of David Miscavige, who had been vanished and disappeared by him, uh, she was undergoing quote, handlings by Scientology and was becoming increasingly disillusioned with what was happening. And so reached out to me to, because she had been told, you know, I was this, uh, like they, they started piling on me and piling on Debbie and she wanted to hear what we had to say about it. And so that was kind of the start. And then she then wrote her book and asked me to, you know, if I could help check some of the facts in there and, you know, Scientology terminology. And then subsequent to that, uh, the, the Aftermath program started when another one of my friends who had left the Sea Org, uh, Amy Scobie, uh, her, her mother was on her deathbed and Amy reached out to Leah and Leah sent a camera crew to film the mother on her deathbed. And that became the first episode of the aftermath. And Leah asked me to help her. And I said, yes, of course. And so, you know, it three seasons and 37 episodes and two Emmys later, we told a lot of stories about the real experiences that people have had in Scientology. What happens, I suppose, hypothetically, when you've got a Hollywood actor, someone like Leah Remini or, um, I don't know, other, other big Hollywood actors who have left Scientology, and they end up at an award ceremony, and there's Tom Cruise, and there's, is it Elizabeth Moss from The Handmaid's Tale? You know, is, would they just, one of them just, would they just not go? Would there be a fight or just not look at each other? Well, it, it's, it's both. You know, I've experienced both. Uh, Leah and I were at an awards show, I think the, the TV Producers Awards or the TV Critics Awards or something, and we were nominated, and so was Handmaid's Tale, and Elizabeth Moss was sitting at a table like four, four tables removed from us, studiously ignoring us. And, you know, neither Leah or I wanted to get up and kind of go make her feel uncomfortable. It wasn't really the right place to do that. But when our category came up, she got up and left the room. And went wherever she went. She claimed later on she just had to go to the bathroom. But she wasn't there because she couldn't be put in a position of having to stand up and applaud when we won. And another time we were at a, you know, another Emmy event and Sneaky Pete was nominated and Brian Cranston was there and uh, Vonnie Rabisi is the other sort of lead in Sneaky Pete. And 
Leah and I are there, and we're all supposed to be going on stage to talk about the shows, and it was like a Q&A session or something, and Brian Cranston's out there, and we're like, hi, Brian, how are you, blah, 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 congratulations, you know, for being nominated, and he's congratulating us. Hey, where's Vonnie? Ah, he heard you were going to be here, so he couldn't come. Oh, oh, I've just looked him up. I know who he is. I've seen him in loads of things what have i seen him in yeah he's a second generation scientologist and you know his sister is uh, marissa rubisi i I mean the whole family is like his mother is the manager of of i don't know erica christensen i i didn't even remember who all the the names are but the Rabisi family is Scientology sort of celebrity royalty in the L.A. area. And, you know, he, like so many others, Elizabeth Moss is another second-generation Scientologist. Danny Masterson is another second-generation Scientologist. They have an entire world not just their family, their entourage, their friends, they're all Scientologists. And they can't, you know, step out of the party line. So they have to be careful. They they have to be careful about what happens when they get interviewed, when asked questions. They have to be careful about what they do when they go to awards presentations. It's a, it's a very... Um, it's like a minefield to navigate your way through. And if you want to remain in good standing with Scientology, you don't want to ever do anything that would indicate that you had anything other than scorn and contempt for Leah Remini and Mike Rinder. Well, and vice versa, I suppose. You guys, you know, and, and do you then feel like you want to say to certain directors, you know, someone like Spielberg, you don't have to work with Tom Cruise. You're, you're Steven Spielberg, right? You can have any actor. It, does, it can be anyone. Do you want to say? Would you want to say to them, like, you know, this guy is in charge of a, a cult that commits abuses? Well, certainly. I mean, I write about Steven Spielberg and what happened to him and Tom Cruise's efforts, and they all backfired because of Scientology's uh insane views about psychiatry and you know i cover that in the book but certainly i think that journalists and people that work with uh particularly tom cruise who is a poster child for scientology he is he has uh sort of made a a a thing about how he has credited Scientology for his success. And, you know, David Miscavige has lauded him for getting so many people into Scientology and helping to get so many people in. And I believe he has a responsibility to also be truthful about the abuses that are ongoing in Scientology and that, journalists shouldn't agree to interview Tom Cruise on the condition that they not ask him any negative questions about Scientology. That that There were two sort of famous interviews, weren't there? There was a Lowry one and Overton one in Australia that was uh, the... Uh, oh, God, what did he say? I can't remember in that one. But the, the first one was about psychiatry. He had this big debate, and it's all over YouTube, this video, and he really gets very angry about it but what he and i think he even makes some relatively good points about you know over prescribing ritalin and things like that but what he doesn't say is 
what the alternative is. He doesn't say. Whereas in your book, there's a there's a particularly uh, uh, <laughs> a difficult scene, I suppose, with um, somebody who's been put inside a room on the on the boat. So, yes. so what is the Scientology line on on psycho or what to do with someone who's psychotic? Well, unfortunately, Hubbard. Uh, believe that he had invented the answer for psychosis, which is to lock someone up, uh, not speak to them, not have any noise going on uh, in their environment until they calm down. And then you put them on an e-meter and you, you do particular steps on this e-meter. Hubbard, quote, researched this on one man. <laughs> on the Apollo, and then wrote this extensive dissertation about how he has developed the only method of solving psychosis, and that now there is no longer any reason for, for psychiatry to exist on planet Earth. And it was all based on this one guy. And why he calmed down who knows? I mean, he was uh, a raging uh, madman for many days and violent. And, you know, I guess he ran out of energy in part. He didn't eat. He was, you know, but that's just my speculation as to what happened. But what I, I know what happened is Hubbard then wrote this lengthy thing saying, here is how you treat someone in a state of psychosis. And the terrible, horrible uh, subsequent result of that is the infamous death of a woman named Lisa McPherson at the Fort Harrison Hotel, the Clearwater head, spiritual headquarters of Scientology, uh, many years later, who was in theory being treated for her psychotic episode with Hubbard's what he called introspection rundown. And... She ultimately uh, went for days and days and days getting no treatment, no, no real care. And when they finally decided that she needed to be taken to a hospital, they drove her to a hospital 45 minutes away rather than the one that was within a mile. And she was dead upon arrival of and there is a lot more to this story, and there is a whole chapter in the book about it. Um, and I say in there, you know, this could be the subject of an entire book. Um, I reduced it to a chapter. It is a, a fairly lengthy chapter, nevertheless. But the, this, this is what I was talking about earlier, Andrew, this idea that there is a technology in Scientology, that if you just do the technology exactly as Ron says, it will work 100% of the time. So if you do exactly what Ron says to this woman, clearly in a psychotic episode and in great distress and in physical, uh, a state of virtual physical collapse, but don't go to the doctor don't take her to a hospital. Do what Ron says. And what Ron says is blah, blah, blah. And they kept doing, quote, unquote, what Ron says. And the net result was she didn't get any other form of treatment. Now, it's possible that she could have died 
based on a, a she did have a pulmonary embolism that kills a lot of people. She could have died even if she had been in a hospital. Tons of people die of pulmonary embolisms in the hospital. But we shall never know because she wasn't taken to a hospital. She was kept in a hotel room at the Fort Harrison Hotel and guarded to be to prevent her from escaping and theoretically kept in a quiet, peaceful environment. That, and she's no longer with us. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I've heard um, similar uh, or rumors, I suppose, about about John Travolta's son, and and uh, uh, they they didn't go for you know medication that might have helped. Well, I don't know what the circumstances are with respect to Jet, but certainly I know that Scientologists are absolutely one hundred percent opposed to psychiatric drugs, mind altering drugs of any description, whether street drugs or psychiatric prescribed drugs are all bad taboo in Scientology and they are not to be used. They are, they are seen as a, as a, an easy, ineffective solution that creates more problems than it solves. That's why you hear Tom Cruise going off on Matt Lauer about Brooke Shields taking antidepressants for her postpartum depression. And he claims to be the world's expert on this because every Scientologist is the world's expert when it comes to anything that they have learned from Ron Hubbard. So he calls Matt Lauer glib and says, you don't know and I do and you're unaware and blah, 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 blah. And Matt Lauer keeps trying to ask him the question, but Tom, if... Is it possible that someone could be helped by these things? Like, there are people that say it helps them. Is that not true? And he just sort of ignores him and blurts on with, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad. And this is, you know, Scientology think in a nutshell. Hubbard says psychiatric drugs are bad, so we all know they are, and we will never, ever use them. Did you meet or know uh, Tom Cruise or John Travolta? Oh, yeah. I talk about a lot in the book. I met Tom Cruise many times. In fact, I was the first person that Tom Cruise asked and or complained that his sister couldn't find him a girlfriend, which ultimately ended up in the, uh, the search for a girlfriend for Tom Cruise that began with Nazanin Boniadi and then ultimately ended up with Katie Holmes, which was documented in a, in a marvelous piece for Vanity Fair by Maureen Auth called What Did Katie Know? And, or What Didn't Katie Know? What did or what didn't? One or the other. Anybody can look it up. Um, but 
I and I had a lot of interactions with John Travolta. I mean, I talk about him. He gave me the script for Pulp Fiction and asked me if he should do the movie. And the genius I am, I told him no. <laughs> so it would be a big mistake. Why? Because I, I told him it's unbecoming of a Scientologist to play a heroin-addicted assassin. That is not a good look for a Scientologist. And yet he did it. Yes, he did. He was smarter than me. But but also, are there different rules, I suppose? Because if somebody wasn't a celebrity went against your advice at that time, they, you know, it wouldn't have been good for them, presumably. Yes, that's ex- well, that's exactly right, Andrew. But also, had the movie been a flop he probably would have been in trouble because he had been told beforehand, don't do it. But because it was a huge success and, you know, revitalized his career, it was like, okay, no problem. (laughs) Everybody knows it's it's just a role, so it's not really an issue. It's a phenomenal film. It is a phenomenal film. He's a phenomenal actor. Like, the best actor that has been or is in Scientology, in my view, is John Travolta. I mean, he had, for a while, John Travolta was the shit, man. And when he wore a white suit, everybody started buying white suits. When we, he wore a cowboy hat, everybody started wearing cowboy hats and doing the two-step. When, you know, he got into fitness, everybody was down at the gym doing their jumping jacks with, you know, with the disco music when when he was greece everybody loved greece i mean he was uh he was very iconic and he created the trends in society unlike probably any other movie star in history in fact i Look, I try to be um, as objective as I can in this book. I don't. I try not to say things that I, I think are just for sensationalistic purposes. I like John Travolta. I feel sorry that he is is sort of enmeshed in this web that he doesn't seem to be able to find his way out of. But he is a nice, nice man. Not the same with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is a phony nice man. I've heard I've heard that so often, and you know, because when you hear people say that, you always think, okay, well, that's that person's opinion. Because you can't, you should never take just what someone's. You know, you should always think, okay, but but everyone says that that John Travolta seems like a really nice guy who's maybe fallen for the wrong things, and that Tom Cruise is just not good. Yeah, he's he's Tom Cruise uh, has a surface uh, persona that is you know, over-the-top handshakes and huggies and wow and enthusiasm and this and that, and behind the scenes is a much, much, much uh, less endearing character. And, and, and what about you? I mean, at, at your worst, let's say, when you were fully on board with the cult, I mean, do you look back with guilt at, at some of the things you uh, did? <laughs> Fuck yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, there are many places in this book where I do not look good. And, you know, it's sort of the unvarnished, you know, here is what I was doing. And I try and explain my thought processes, but that doesn't really 
that doesn't really make some of the things that I did less reprehensible. I mean, I feel, feel, um, a real sense of guilt for a lot of things that I did. Yes. And I've sought to apologize to a lot of people and reached out to a lot of people. Obviously I can't reach out to everybody, but the book is also in part an attempt to, to, you know, atone for some of those things and explain them and, and let people know what it was that I was doing and why I was doing it. What do you think is, is there one thing that sticks out to you? One, one moment in particular that brings guilt? Yeah, I think that, that probably the story of Bob Minton, uh, who came along, uh, never been a Scientologist and took up the cause of the death of Lisa McPherson and became a real headache to us in Scientology. And I basically oversaw the the fair game efforts to destroy Bob Benton and uh, got all of his money that he had frozen uh, through a, uh, like, it's a long, circuitous story, but he eventually couldn't take the pressure and basically caved in. And um, subsequent to my leaving Scientology, I honestly became friends with Bob and and his uh, partner at the time, Stacy. And unfortunately, Bob passed away. Stacy's still around. A lovely, lovely person who I have, have spent a lot of time reminiscing with, but the the things that were done to this guy who had no dog in the fight, he was just a decent fellow who thought that some injustice and something was wrong and started providing funding for people to protest and uh bring attention to what he believed were were things that were abuses in Scientology, he became the subject of, a, of an, an inordinately intense campaign to silence him through intimidation, through following him, through uh, trying to stage... Uh, and, and provoke him into acts of violence, which would get him arrested. And it was just a, it was a whole very nasty, nasty experience. And I go into some details about it in the book because I figured it was sort of the, the, you know, the, the coming together of all the worst in, in one Thing. Well, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about um, cognitive bias and, and cult ideology and stuff on this podcast. And I think what's brilliant about your book as well is you, you're so taken inside uh, the world of Scientology for, from you as a young age. You really see it through your eyes and you, we sort of journey in there with you and you're just hanging out with a bunch of people. And it just feels like you're on some sort of uh, holiday camp or something or working together. And you can see how it happens, and I think you can empathize. So uh, where can, you know, the usual places, I imagine, where people can get the, uh, your book, and, and where, where do you want to send them as well, Twitter and stuff? Oh, well, they, yeah, I mean, you can get the book in bookstores or on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble or at, at, through the Simon & Schuster website. 
Um, yeah, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I have a, a daily blog, MikeRindersBlog.org, where I sort of write about things that have, are of interest to me about Scientology or trying to explain things about Scientology or talk about my book or whatever. Um, but generally, I hope that the book reaches a wider audience than those who think they just want to know about Scientology. I hope that it becomes like my, my hope for my book. And, and I don't think that I can ever achieve the, the um, brilliance of Tara Westover in her, in her phenomenal book, educated, but that became something that people look to, to, understand how you can get like completely immersed in a crazy world and it seemed perfectly normal to you. And then how can you get yourself out of that? And I, I hope that it helps people to realize that it's possible to get out. Who's that on the, on the cover? Is that you? Yes, sir. That's me when I was 18, right when I joined the Sea Org. Very handsome, and, and, but very androgynous as well. <laughs> well, I don't know that I've ever been called androgynous before. That's a first. I guess so. I look kind of girly on there. I think you look like Amanda Knox. <laughs> oh, you're, you're too involved with Amanda Knox, Andrew. <laughs> I know. I'm obsessed with Amanda Knox. She's been on here twice. I've been on her podcast. I, I've, I just, I'm fascinated by the whole thing. And now I'm seeing her in the eyes of Mike Rinder. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Many thanks to my very special guest, Mike Rinder. I salute him for breaking free from the bonds of an abusive cult, as well as for taking responsibility for his own role at its core. Do get his book, A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology in all the normal places. And follow Mike on Twitter. I'm on Gold underscore OK there and on Instagram. Please do support the podcast on patreon.com slash Gold, where you'll get ad-free episodes and leave a review on Apple. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.